We are in a series this during this uh, month of Advent and Christmas uh, titled His Name Shall Be Called. We're exploring the names of the coming Messiah as the prophet Isaiah predicted his coming in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse, verses 6 and 7. And uh, would you stand with me and let's uh, honor the Lord as we read his word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, we come now to the third name for the promised Messiah given us by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9-6, Everlasting Father. In Hebrew, Abi Ad. If you're a student of the Bible at any level, pretty much, um, this name or title for Messiah ought to present you with uh, a point of theological dissonance provide the occasion to pause and to reflect, uh, to ask some important questions. Chief among them ought, I think, to be this question. Why would Isaiah refer to Messiah as everlasting Father? Specifically, how can Jesus the Messiah, God the Son, the second person of the Godhead, be God the Father, the first person of the Godhead. How can the eternal Son also be the everlasting Father unless the Son and the Father are the same person within the Godhead? And what we're touching on here is the mystery of the three-in-one God, Uh, what Christians for centuries have referred to as the triunity or in abbreviated fashion, the Trinity. We do not find the word Trinity in the pages of Scripture. You can work as hard as you might to find it, you won't. And it's important to be reminded that that we can't build a theology of the triune God, or really of anything else, from only isolated texts. 
See, it's only when we kind of take a step back and view the, the Bible in its totality, when we look to the New Testament in particular, that this doctrine emerges with some clarity. And what we find when we do that is the implicit revelation that God is one, that he exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they are one in essence, and they are co-equal in every divine attribute, that together they are one God. Someone, somewhere along the line, developed this diagram, which I produced for you with not a great level of skill. But it provides with that for us a, a basic way of thinking about, thinking correctly about all of this. If you'll notice with me, it indicates that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but that the Father is not the Son, neither is the Son the same person as the Father. The Son is the Holy Spirit, neither uh, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, neither is the Holy Spirit the same person as the Son. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, neither is the Father the same person as the Holy Spirit, but together they are one God. I tried to explain this to some Muslim friends of mine years ago, and they just scratched their heads and walked away. This diagram is helpful as a starting point, a beginning way of thinking about this, but it's important to be reminded that beyond our intellectual constructs, whatever they may be, what the Bible reveals about the triunity of the infinite God, the eternal God, is entirely beyond the scope of our finite minds. Uh, there's much more mystery here much more interconnectedness, uh, much larger matters than our minds can comprehend. The late Dr. Walter Martin pointed out that no man can fully explain the Trinity, though in every age scholars have propounded theories and advanced hypotheses to explore this mysterious biblical teaching. But despite the worthy efforts of these scholars, the Trinity is still largely incomprehensible to the mind of man. Well, what, what do we mean by that? Is it really beyond our understanding? Well, not entirely. We can see it. We can understand it. But John Wesley once said, bring, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I'll show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. So it's important for us to realize and to affirm that Isaiah is not teaching that God the Son and God the Father are, in fact, the same person. In fact, it's unlikely that Isaiah even had in mind the triune God, the triune nature of God at all, when he said that the Messiah would be called Everlasting Father. The Messiah's role, the role of the Son of God within the Godhead, is not 
the thrust of this prophecy. In fact, though the triune nature of God can, with some effort, be detected in the Old Testament, it's really not until we get into the New Testament that all of it takes on much greater clarity. Instead, it's it's much more likely that what I, Isaiah is revealing is simply the character that he, by the Holy Spirit he saw regarding the coming Messiah, the manner in which he would relate to his people, that Messiah would relate to his people as a father in an everlasting way. The early church denounced the idea that God the Son and God the Father are one and the same. They called it the heresy of modalism. Modalism. Well, what is modalism? It's a doctrine that was that was set forth by a third century theologian named Sibelius who taught that because God is one and that he is indivisible, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are therefore not three distinct persons within the Godhead, but rather that each was a mode in which the one God appeared or manifested himself to creation and in particular to humanity. Uh, Another way of thinking about modalism is to think about the fact that water can exist in liquid, vapor, in ice. Uh, That eggs can be hard-boiled, fried, or scrambled. A modalist would say that the one God successively revealed himself throughout time in three modes of existence. First as the Father in creation, and then as the Son in redemption, and as the Spirit in regeneration and sanctification. Not surprisingly, Sibelius was excommunicated as a heretic by Pope Callistus exactly 1,800 years ago in A.D. 220. You might say you're having a bad year, and so apparently did he. So if Isaiah wasn't conflating God the Son and God the Father as the same person, what exactly was he doing? He was doing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit what he was doing in revealing each of these names. He was pointing us to important aspects of his nature. And Isaiah here, in his description of Everlasting Father is again directing us to the divine nature of this Messiah who was to come. In the first name or title, we saw that the name wonderful means astonishing, amazing, indescribable, uh, beyond understanding, beyond description. As Alistair Begg put it, a good working definition of wonderful is that which requires God as its explanation. That something could only be some way, could only be doing some things, if God was present. The name counselor speaks to us of the one whose counsel, whose instruction, comes to us with the full authority of God. It was Nicodemus who said to Jesus, and it's recorded in John 3, verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In that statement, Nicodemus was declaring Jesus to be wonderful counselor, as both his teaching and his miraculous and his miracles required God as their explanation. 
Isaiah captured both of these dynamics in chapter 28, verse 29, where he wrote, The Lord of hosts is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Last week, we saw that the name Mighty God pictures Jesus as the strong and mighty one of Israel. As a warrior, the Lord of hosts, the commander of the armies of the Lord, or as we sing, the God of angel armies. And because he is mighty, he is able, he is willing, he is waiting to save all who will come to him, call upon him in humble, simple, personal faith. And next week, we'll we'll see Jesus as Prince of Peace, the one whose rule and reign brings order and wholeness to the chaos and the conflicts of our lives and of our world. Each of these names reveals something important about this child who was born to us, the son who was given to us when he came into the world in human flesh. The Bible teaches, and Isaiah was beginning to get the picture, that Messiah Jesus is of one nature and one essence with the Father. A major key to a a beginning understanding, a foundational understanding of the the triune or three-in-one God is to understand these terms essence and person. The Bible reveals God as one in essence, existing eternally in three distinct persons. When you think about it, the triunity of God is the ultimate example. It's the ultimate expression of unity in diversity. The world uh, extols, don't they, the value of diversity. Uh, Some give lip service to the experience of unity in diversity. But the world's efforts at unity and diversity always predictably degenerate into an insistence, a demand for conformity, not unity. Jesus can and does exercise a fatherly relationship with his own for the simple fact that he is one in nature and essence with God the Father. John put it this way in the first chapter of his gospel. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The Jewish elites of Jesus' day, uh, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the ruling council, had a variety of motivations for their desire to get rid of Jesus. And not least among them was that he claimed this very thing to be of one essence with the Father. John records one such interaction in chapter 10 of his gospel, beginning at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. 
So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because, listen now, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he says these words, I and the Father are one. Game over. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. I and the Father, he said, are one. That night in which Jesus was betrayed, arrested, beaten, delivered over for trial, Jesus was with his disciples and he said to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, now listen to what Jesus is saying to Thomas. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. And Philip jumps into the conversation. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Remember in John 17 that Jesus prayed that God would make us one just as 
He was in the Father and the Father was in Him that we would be in them. Oneness. Everlasting Father. Everlasting describes His never-ending care for His own. So I was studying this week, I came across this quote from Charles Spurgeon, the British pastor and theologian, who said that there is no unfathering Christ and there is no unchilding us. He is everlastingly a father to those who trust in him. I love that. There is no unfathering Christ. There is no unchilding us. Alistair Begg suggests that one way of thinking of Jesus as everlasting father is to simplify the name to father forever. His care for us, for his own, will continue on forever and ever. He will never abandon us. He will never throw us out. He'll never leave us or forsake us, never abandon us, never relinquish his responsibility, never renege on his promises. He's not only wonderful counselor and mighty God, he is everlasting father. Let's spend a little time thinking together about what that means for our relationships with Jesus. In Psalm 103, verse 13, the psalmist says of him, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. One of the things that I've observed in my life is that every father views his own children in a way that he doesn't view anyone else's children. There's a unique relationship. There's a a unique perspective. There is in that relationship a uniqueness of identification, of affection, of compassion, of longings, of hopes, of dreams. And in this larger psalm, Psalm 103, David kind of brings the lens into focus on that familial connection between God, our Father forever, and his children. And and for the rest of our time together this morning, I'd like to stay right here in this psalm. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his way to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And I just want to want us to see three important facts from this psalm about what it means to trust in Jesus and so to have God as our Father forever. First of all, it means that his forgiveness of us is complete. His forgiveness of us is complete. David begins by calling his own soul to worship, as it were. And one of the prominent themes of David's psalms is that we frequently find him speaking to his own soul, a little self-talk, uh, a little reminder to the inner being of what is true, uh, maybe a little spiritual self-control. And he calls his soul here to a remembrance of God's goodness that then moves him to praise. Praise the Lord, all my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Hey, soul, hey, soul of mine, don't forget, remember. And it's easy, isn't it, to forget the benefits that are ours in Christ, to become preoccupied, especially in these days, with lesser things like paychecks, and pandemics, and politics, and the predictably unpredictable Seahawks. And David says, soul of mine, remember, remember, don't forget in the push and pull of life the goodness of our forever father. At the heart of the psalm and, and running all through it is the reminder that he forgives completely. Verse 10, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. That's good news. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, verse 11, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Well, how has he done that? How has he removed our transgressions from us? Now, I understand maybe the concept of forgiveness, but, but removing them entirely? Well, fast forward from Isaiah 9 to Isaiah 53, where the prophet tells us how it is that God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. 
He writes, but he was, he, that is Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, laid on him, the iniquity of us all. See, our forever Father forgives us completely, doesn't treat us as our sins deserve for one cosmically significant, life-transforming reason, which is that Messiah Jesus has died in the place of sinners. He doesn't count our sins against us because at the cross, He counted our sins against His one and only Son, Jesus. The Bible says that He bore our sins in His sinless body. His death needs no repetition. Neither does it need to be supplemented by our weak human effort, by our groveling, by our pleading, by a season in purgatory. His forgiveness is perfect because He is perfect. And so the sacrifice that he offered is perfect. His blood cleanses completely even the darkest, most defiled conscience. You say, oh, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. I've committed some pretty exotic sins. Congratulations. But if you think that your sin is greater than the price of the death of the Son of God, then you are as arrogant as can be imagined in your own sin. His forgiveness of us is complete, and secondly, his knowledge of us, this psalm tells us, is comprehensive. He knows us. He knows where we've been. He knows what we have done. Isaiah 103, verse 14, he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. It's been said that for our inner health, each of us needs to be able to answer three fundamental questions. First of all, who am I? Who am I? Secondly, where did I come from? Third, where am I going? I wonder this morning if you know the answers to those questions as it, as they pertain to you. Everlasting Father attends not only to the issue of our guilt, which we each understand and need an answer to, but also the issues of our identity, our origin, and our destiny. Notice Psalm 139, beginning at verse 1. O Lord, you, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. 
Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Continuing on at verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. His knowledge of us is thorough. He knew you before you were born. He knew every day of your life before there was yet one of them. He knows the number of the hairs on your heads, the Bible tells us. For some of us, there are less and less of those. And I want you to know that God knows and He cares. See, there's not a single thing that He doesn't know about you. One of the things that this psalm tells us, Psalm 139, is that you are more than a random mass of cells. You're not just an accident of the universe. You were made by Him and for Him, and He has a plan and a purpose for your life that has significance not only for time, but for eternity. His forgiveness of you is complete. His knowledge of you is thorough. And third, His love for us is constant. Constant. Notice verse 8 with me of Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Abounding in love. What does it mean to abound? It means to have a superabundance. It means to overflow. Your everlasting Father overflows with love for you. Not just in spite of what He knows about you, but because of what He knows about you. He knows how you were formed. He knows the days that are appointed for you, what you will do with those days. He knows His plan and His purpose for your life. He loves you. His loving kindness is what moves us to repentance when we realize that what we deserve, we will not receive. What we deserve is what He took for us, our death, our suffering for our own sin. And all because of an everlasting love that moved God to send a Savior in the person of Jesus Christ. What we deserve, we will not receive, but we will receive what we do not deserve. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him. Verse 17. His love is a love that you can depend on. 
His love is a covenant kind of love, a love that, that takes the initiative in drawing us to himself, in binding to himself a people who once were separated from him by sin, who were running from him, who were rebelling against him, who were hostile toward him, but who in his great love he pursued and who now are his very own. And that's why we sing higher than the mountains that I face, stronger than the power of the grave, constant through the trial and the change. One thing remains. This one thing remains. Your love never fails and never gives up. It never runs out on me. Because on and on and on it goes before it overwhelms and satisfies my soul and never, and I never ever have to be afraid. One thing remains. One thing remains. Your love never fails and never gives up. It never runs out on me. Your grace never fails and never gives up. It never runs out on me. In Isaiah 49 verse Verses 15 to 16, he says to us, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. See, at the cross, Jesus died in your place. He died for you. He stood in as your substitute. And there he engraved you on the palms of his hands, the eternal reminder of his love for you. Remember that as Jesus appeared to his disciples and there was one who was doubting named Thomas, that Jesus in his glorified body allowed Thomas to touch the nail prints in his hands. And when you see Jesus in heaven, those Nail prints will still be there. You'll see them. Every human heart longs for an everlasting love. Every human heart longs for an endless love. That explains why so many songs are written that speak about that longing and and about the promise of a an unfailing and never-ending love. I told you last week that every week there's a song that gets lodged in my head and just plays all week, and I was thinking this week of one of those love songs as I prepared this message. It was written by Don Schlitz and Paul Overstreet, recorded by Randy Travis, covered by others. The chorus says this, If you wonder how long I'll be faithful, I'll be happy to tell you again. I'm going to love you forever, forever and ever, forever and ever. Amen. Just as every human heart longs for a forever fatherly love, so every heart has a God-shaped hole that only his love can fill. And I want you to know this morning that when you invite him to fill that hole in your life, Your life will not be without problems. But your life will take on a sense of comfort, of confidence, 
of completion. The everlasting Father forgives you completely. He knows you thoroughly. He loves you constantly. See, His love is the only love that can fill that hole, that missing puzzle piece in your life that that, that brings it all together and, and allows you to see the full picture. He would say to you in the words of Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. You might say this morning, I've never known a father like that. I've only known disappointment. I've only known heartache. I've only known emptiness in relationship to my father. I want you to know today that that Jesus came to be your father forever, to introduce you to his father. And once we become his child, we are his and he is ours forever. Forever. And there will be no goodbyes with him. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from his love and not even death itself. In fact, in your death, you will only draw closer and come into a a more intimate and full, perfect relationship with Him. The everlasting Father is going to love you forever, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we long to be fully embraced with that kind of love, a love that looks beyond our fault to our need, a love that deals finally in terms of the forgiveness of our sins, a love that knows us as we really are, all of our warts and blemishes. And in that, loves us constantly. Lord, I pray today that uh, we would, each of us, in this season, come into a deeper relationship with you, a fuller sense of comfort and confidence that you are for us all that we need. And for that one that is here today who has not yet stepped across the line of faith, I pray that today might be the day that you grant to them the gift of faith that would lead to forgiveness and to eternal life. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.